Blog Talk Radio. And he 
Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. We've all heard that old adage that the hours of a commercial airline pilot is hours and hours of sheer boredom, followed by moments of sheer terror. Well, we have a story about one of those uh, such flights uh, involving Captain David C. Vauder. This is from the book, The Wings of Man. It's subtitled, A Coup Pilot Brought This One Down Safely. The pictorial spread, title quoted above, in the April 21st, 1967 issue of Life magazine went on to report that Eastern Airlines Captain David C. Vauder and his crew safely landed their DC-8 back at JFK within minutes of the number two engine explosion and resulting fire, which was spectacularly captured by a professional photographer who was at JFK taking pictures for an article on air traffic congestion. Eastern Flight 63 was bound for New Orleans on April 8th 1967 with 99 passengers. Even now, Dave clearly remembers making the takeoff, hearing a very loud explosion just at VR, and that instantly the fire warning light and bell came on for engine number two, the left inner. With the help of First Officer Al Laney and Second Officer Mike Reed, the engine was shut down, emergency procedures were completed, 
and it returned immediately to JFK for landing. As they were in the air for about only six minutes, flight attendants Judy Waters, Joanne Pennings, and Dick Chattel, and two others whose names Dave regretfully cannot recall, had a bare minimum of time to prepare the passengers for the emergency landing. All went well, however, and as the firemen were extinguishing the remaining flames in the engine, all aboard exited the aircraft by emergency slides over the wing. Less than two hours later, the passengers were aboard another Eastern airplane, once again heading for New Orleans. Dave states, While we were still watching JFK's finest firefighters extinguish the remnants of the blaze, inspectors from the FAA and National Transportation Safety Board came out and asked if we'd like to immediately hold a hearing. We requested a delay to assemble the EAL and ALPA representatives as they too would like to participate. The hearing was convened the same afternoon in the Eastern JFK Ops Office. First, the FAA inspector asked for takeoff and landing weights, then asked if we were overweight for landing, which we concurred. When asked if I considered dumping fuel down to legal maximum landing weight, I replied, yes, very briefly. He apologized for the stupidity of suggesting dumping fuel into a fire, saying the question, question was on the questionnaire and he had asked them all, stupid or not. Both inspectors then joined in giving the crew a thumbs up on performance, saying we were free for duty immediately after completion of the hearing, which took only a few more minutes. True to their word, we heard nothing more. What caused the explosion and fire? A massive failure of the turbine destroyed much of the rear part of the engine. But the teardown investigation later revealed that the failure astoundingly was caused by the 12th stage turbine being installed backwards. It had flown facing to the rear for about 14 hours before it finally came apart. Surprisingly, the engine logbook readings for those 14 hours of flight were normal. During our interview, Dave repeatedly gave credit to Al, Mike, and the flight attendants for their actions. He said after all these years, he still has not figured out how to adequately thank them for making the captain look good, but to this day appreciates their calm attitude and fine performance. Dave was surprised to hear from Mr. Bob Hallman, one of the passengers on the flight, who wrote a letter dated August 27, 2002. Mr. Hallman referred to an article in the June 20, 1921 Spartanburg Journal. His father, E.B. Hallman, also had an exciting airplane ride some 80 years ago. The pilot on that flight, Mac Johnson, later became a very senior Eastern Airlines captain who later had, a, who later had as a co-pilot Dave Valder. The letter reads, Dear Captain Valder, Although we've never met, you certainly played an important role in my life. I was a passenger on Eastern Flight 63 out of JFK on April 8, 1967, with a window seat near the rear port side. I probably had the best seat in the house to observe your starting performance. Needless to say, I have frequently and appreciatively thought of your very professional handling of that difficult and challenging situation. As Life Magazine put it, a cool pilot brought this one down safely. And since my father benefited from a pilot who had wonderful nerve in 1922, I thought you might enjoy the newspaper coverage of his moment of aviation fame. Spartanburg Journal, Monday, June the 20th, 1921, Home Edition, Afternoon. Local man had close escape in airplane accident yesterday. 
machine in which they were passengers stripped its landing gear as it left the ground. Pilot Johnson had wonderful nerve, continued flight, and then wrote note to passengers telling them to prepare for a bump in landing. As S.S. Hallman and Professor E.B. Hallman, sons of Dr. S.T. Hallman, embarked on a flight in an aeroplane piloted by Mac Johnson, ex-Army aeronaut, yesterday morning they embarked upon one of the most thrilling trips men have ever experienced and then survived to tell the story of their experience. The aeroplane took off in an open field on the farm of J. Madison Dean on the National Highway just out the city about 10 30 o'clock yesterday morning. As the big machine rolled across the fields preparatory to taking the air, it encountered an air pocket clinging close to the ground. The machine refused to take to the air and struck a large terrace in the field. The entire apparatus under the airplane, used in making landings, known as the landing gear, was torn loose from the machine. Then the airplane rose like a bird and set out through the air at a rate of 40 miles per hour with neither Professor Hallman nor his brother aware that they were in the air with no means of alighting on the ground safely at the termination of their flight. Pilot Johnson, who has carried 8,500 passengers without an accident, felt the jar caused by the collision of the machine and the terrace and glanced downward. With a start, he realized that the landing gear was demolished and that all his skill would be required to enable the airplane to land on terra firma again without seriously injuring or killing both pilot and passengers. Without hinting to passengers that this party was in a critical predicament, Pilot Johnson calmly asked for a pencil and a piece of paper. Still piloting the machine through the air, he wrote some instructions on the paper and passed the note back to his passengers. The passengers were startled to learn they were without means of making a safe landing. Their instructions were to remove their goggles and spectacles and to secure firm grips on the railings on their seats in order to prevent their being thrown from their seats when the airplane collided with the earth. Pilot Johnson had no intention of botting his long and remarkable record of accidentless flight. He manipulated his machine's steering gear calmly, deliberately, carefully. The big machine veered down toward the earth, its nose gradually and gently nearing the green fields below. Pilot Johnson's chief concern was to eliminate the possibility of the airplane turning turtle as it collided with the unyielding ground, an unfortunate habit in all airplanes have when striking the earth suddenly. Should the heavy machine turn turtle, the pilot realized that all three occupants unquestionably would be injured or killed. The possibility that fire would destroy the wreckage of the machine and its occupants was also to be taken in consideration. Selecting what apparently was the most level section of the big field, Pilot Johnson allowed his plane to drop to the earth gradually. The big machine sailed lower, lower, and then struck the earth at an angle that caused it to slide some feet along the surface of the field. The occupants naturally were jarred considerably, but beyond a few minor bruises and the nervous excitement attendant upon emerging from their remarkable predicament without serious mishap, the pilot and passengers were not injured. The propeller of the machine was smashed, and other parts of the machine were rendered useless. The nose of the airplane buried itself in the soft field, but the heavy mechanism did not turn turtle, thanks to the skillful work of the pilot. The machine trembled violently for a moment and settled back to the earth. In commenting upon this remarkable escape of his party, Pilot Johnson stated today that he has flown in 36 states, covering more than 100,000 miles during his career as an aeronaut. 
He frankly admitted, however, that never in his experience as an aviator has he heard of an accident similar to that of yesterday afternoon. He also admitted that he was surprised that both his passengers and he emerged from the experience without serious injury. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. This is a memory by Marcia Sykes. From November through March, early in the 1960s, when we worked at the ticket counter at JFK, we looked forward to Thursdays. Not because the weekend was close or the hours were easier, because neither of these things were true. In our line of work, it was all in a name, Reuben. It was because every Thursday between November and March, which was Florida peak season, one of our favorite passengers flew down to his home in West Palm Beach. On a schedule meant to give an elderly, hard-working gentleman a well-earned rest. Well ahead and around his Friday evening Sabbath preparations. Like clockwork, he came back every Monday. Every Thursday when the passenger entered the eastern terminal at the recently renamed JFK International Airport, he was followed by an orderly row of white-jacketed men carrying a stack of white cartons. And because these were the days before hijackings and security problems, the men marched unimpeded straight to the back of the ticket counter and headed to our training room where they deposited their cargo. From November through March, <clears throat> Mr. Reuben of Reuben's Deli in New York brought Reuben sandwiches for the entire passenger service personnel at JFK. Everyone was fed, and we always had enough to pass around to the other departments. Nowadays, you can Google and read all about the Reuben and all about the historical versions regarding its birth and developments by this person or that person in one city or another. But for those of us who were privileged to know Mr. Reuben, his name, his generosity, and his creation are forever engraved in our hearts and memories and in the area of our brain where special meals are remembered. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. This is a vignette by Missy Guerrero. Having been born and raised in the Dominican Republic, I had a lot of family members, especially elderly ones still living on the island, that I tried to visit as often as I could. I worked in engineering and maintenance, building number 22, and had authority to drive a small golf-type cart between buildings and on the tarmac. One time I had a family emergency and needed to fly out to Santa Domingo, so I came to work with my suitcase in hand. My plans were to leave my car in the employee parking lot and catch a ride to the terminal. 
My supervisor, Franklin Ross, asked one of the guys to drive me across the tarmac to the terminal. However, there was no room in the vehicle for my suitcase. He told me not to worry and flagged down another vehicle that was passing by on the way to the terminal. When I looked at the writing on it, I realized I was hitching a ride on the poop truck. This is a story by June Eggleston called Two Challenging Events. I was one of two reservation agents chosen from the Miami office to open Eastern Reservations office in Belize, Central America. When Eastern started flying to Belize in 1988, our job was to make sure reservation agents hired to man phones and computers would be able to handle their responsibilities alone after our assignment was over. I was there for seven weeks and during that period met many travel agents and answered their questions about our new route and the company in general. It was a very enjoyable time for me being in such a beautiful country with gorgeous white sandy beaches, a great variety of seafood, and most importantly, wonderful, friendly people. Another memorable event when I was signed up to fly to Calcutta to Mother Teresa's orphanage to escort orphans to their adopting parents in the United States. Eastern and several other airlines volunteered their services for this program. As an escort, I gave up my vacation time to go to India. While in India, I volunteered to take the Brigadier General of the Prisons of India, as well as his daughter, on a tour of my native New York City. The General worked closely with Mother Teresa as he and his staff would pick up children wandering about without adult supervision on the streets of Calcutta, homeless and without food. He would take them to the prison until Mother Teresa and her helpers could take the children to the orphanage. It was such an uplifting experience that I will never forget. After delivering the children to their new families, I received wonderful pictures of the children in their new environments. The joy on their little faces was a sight to behold. I am a very proud former employee of Eastern Airlines, and I was blessed that EAL gave me so many chances to spread my wings and to fly to many parts of the world. Of all my travels, I most remember my time in Calcutta in the presence of Mother Teresa and her wonderful staff, who today, nearly 20 years after her death, continue to spread joy and hope to the downtrodden.
A thousand years ago, the Aztecs worshipped the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. The interview I did with uh, Captain Hassan Calloway a few years ago down in Lakeland, Florida at the Sun and Fun Air Show was uh, so good that we published it in the book Wings of Many. And there were so many good stories. We've already, I think, read about three stories uh, in the uh, previous shows. And here's another one that only a master storyteller like uh, Hassan uh, Calloway can tell. The editor, me, asked Hallison, who uh, <laughs> asked Hassan, who were some of the interesting guys you flew with, Hassan? Hassan's response. Well, to start off with, there was Harold Huff. Harold would call me Jigger. He would say, hey, Jigger, what are we getting, an A or an N signal from the low-frequency range station? I was flying co-pilot with Harold, and we were going into Brownsville, Texas. It was always fogged in every morning. Harold would say, hey, Jigger, tell me when we go over the palm trees. We would keep letting down when I would say, palm trees. Sure enough, there would be the airport. I flew three years and three months as co-pilot and had some very good training. There was Larry Pabst, Paul Foster, and Shelley Charles, to name just a few. We had a good rapport with the guys in the tower just about everywhere Eastern flew. They would always give us minimums when the fee was down. Chicago never went below the eastern minimums. I recall that uh, after you passed the Kedzie fan marker, you'd turn the volume down real low or high till you were sure. Radio was no good from then on. After that, it was at 1,200 feet turn to a north heading for about 90 seconds then a standard rate, which was 3 degrees per second, uh, turn. And finally, you'd let down. The reason you were turning was to go around the Cracker Jack stack. You had two runways, northwest runways, and you would never miss. I flew up there 10 or 11 years and never went to the range station up north of that. When you would call those tower guys and ask what the weather was, they would say, it's good, come on, we're looking for you. Well, that meant it was pretty good. If it was down a little bit, they would say, well, let's think about it. I think it will be okay when you get here. This meant it was about 800 feet. If you got in a little closer, they would say, you better look at it for a little bit before making a landing, meaning it was less than previously mentioned. If it was really bad, when you asked, they would reply with, 
I don't know. Let me wipe off let me wipe off the windows and take a look. You would know just by listening to them what the weather was. That would be our first assignment as a captain to fly up there. I've flown from Atlanta to Chicago making five stops and never have enough collective for it to be VFR. In the 50s, when the Martin came to Eastern, nothing had changed on the airlines for 15 years. My number stayed at 165, meaning nobody died, nobody got killed, and nobody quit. I stayed stagnant at 165 on the seniority list. It seemed forever. The big event for that decade was the closing of Bowman Field and moving over to Stanford in Louisville, Kentucky. It wasn't that big a deal, but we got a memo saying we had to make seven link trainer approaches and draw all the maps and show where the Dobbs house was. Then have a briefing by the check pilot This was the big event. Everybody was looking forward to it. We had a guy named Babe Myth. Now, Babe was a brilliant idiot. He wore glasses that had lens like two Coke bottles. Everything he did was with a slider. I even think he he did the ones and twos in the slide on the slide rule. He was absolutely a nut. Brilliant but with no common sense. When he was constipated, he worked it out with a pencil. (laughs) Dave came out about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning to go to Chicago, but he landed at Bowman Field. The field closed at midnight. It was an illegal airport, and they couldn't do it. They had to get a bus and haul all the people over to Stanford, then get a ferry permit to fly the aircraft over and then on to Chicago. That afternoon, Act 1, Scene 2. Dave came back from Chicago, lands at Bowman again. They should have retained the bus and the ferry permit to fly the airplane over to Sandford in Louisville. Furman Stone, my boss, who I love more than anything, called Babe on the carpet the next morning and said, Babe, how in the damn hell could you have landed at the wrong airport twice in the same day? Babe replied, Well, Captain Stone, I was about 20 miles out and checking in while I was cleaning my glasses. Furman cut him short and said, Babe, You lying son of a bitch. How could you clean your glasses with your head up your ass? They made him a check pilot to keep him out of trouble thereafter. There were others, but we don't have time or enough tape to go into that. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Here's 
Here is an article that will soon appear in the soon-to-be-published Wings of Many, Volume 2. It originally appeared in the Repartee Magazine, the publication of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. The title, Gear Down. Charlie Myers was a noted aircraft designer, having had a hand in Matty Laird's racer, the Waco 10, and the renowned Great Lakes, still known as probably the finest acrobatic airplane ever built. Charlie was also an excellent aviator and man of a thousand friends. Charlie's strongest claim to fame, however, was his vitriotic temper. He would fly into a towering rage over the most trivial occurrence, and his anger was an awesome thing to see. His face would flush to a tomato red. His lips would take on a coloring that would make one think he had been eating blackberries. The cords of his neck would resemble skin-clad cables, and the invective spouting from his mouth had been known to blister the paint on an oven door. He had no tolerance for timidity, ineptitude, stupidity, and most of all, a co-pilot who demonstrated fear of Charlie's short fuse and potential for explosion. As the fates would naturally decree, Charlie was scheduled to fly with a young, very meek, and very, very inexperienced new co-pilot. After an hour or so, Charlie who always gave his co-pilots their fair share of the flying, told his young neophyte to make the next landing. The results were spectacular. They thumped, bumped, thumped, bumped, and jumped all over the airport and surrounding terrain. Finally, the plane was stopped, taxied in, and parked at the ramp. The expected eruption from Charlie did not materialize. They went into the terminal, had a coke, signed the clearance, and reboarded the plane. The timid little co-pilot began to relax. Maybe Captain Myers was not the, like the stories that had been told about him, he thought. On the next hop, Charlie did the flying. They began encountering thunderstorms, and Charlie retarded the throttles to kill off some of the airspeed, but before any appreciable effect was noticed the turbulence became quite heavy. Gear down, yelled Myers. That was the accepted way to effect a fast speed reduction. The young co-pilot, his self-assurance somewhat restored, noted that the airspeed was above the maximum for gear extension and merely pointed to the airspeed indicator. Put the G-damned gear down, said Charlie. But Captain... The manual clearly states that the maximum speed is why you simple-headed, feather-brained, pimple-faced, finger-pointing, blankety-blank, hollered Charlie, his visage, visage taking on hues and tints never seen on a Technicolor screen. If you don't knock that blankety-blank thing off on that last landing, you sure as hell ain't going to blow the blankety-blank thing off, off now. End of story. The sound of the engines on takeoff, the pull of the G-forces we climbed, hundreds and hundreds of meals, those awful carts, that navy blue Don Lopper uniform with white gloves and a hat, 
skies of incredible color. The Connie Queen of the Skies, the Electra with its four prop engines that made me sick, the L-1011 with its Rolls-Royce engines that malfunctioned, when the planes first came online, how many times did we go back to the gate? The DC-10 to South America and the flights over the Amazon basin where not a light could be seen. Endless days of clouds and endless hours of night. ETAs and ETDs and 14-hour duty rigs. How about four to a room on a 12-hour layover? How about that bid sheet? How about that old DC-8 from ORD to SJU? Now that was the flight, dawn and dusk. I remember it all, but mostly I remember the people I flew with, laughed with, cried with. I remember Amber and Marilyn, Bonnie, Dolly, and Linda, Martha, Bev, Rodney, and Graciela, Sonny and Al, and Fran and Abby, and so many more. To all those with whom I have slipped the surly bonds of earth, and dance the skies on laughter's silvered wings, I remember and I bid you well. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon, four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Here's another great story as told by Captain Hassan Calloway uh, to Neil Holland in an interview for the magazine Repartee a few years back. Hassan. We had a trip that left Atlanta about 10 o'clock that night. The stops were New Orleans, Houston, and Brownsville, Texas, and then connect with Pan American. It was big time to fly a night crawler, as we call them. You know, you had to be very careful with this airplane when you would normally start a rate of descent about 300 to 500 feet a minute. In this airplane, you had to start way out with about 200 feet rate of descent and not do a three-point landing. You just wheeled on the the runway nice and easy. One night around Birmingham, I leveled at about 8,000 feet. Frank Bright, the flight attendant, the old-time steward, as they were called, came up and said, Hassan, I'm missing a a passenger. I swear they were all on when we when we left. I asked how the count would be wrong as we only had about 18 people on the plane that night. He went back to do another head count. Before we got to New Orleans, the co-pilot, Lee Hines, noticed the white light start flashing. Frank came up and said, Hey, I found the passenger, Hassan. You're not going to you're not going to like it, but he's in bed with a gal up on the top bunk, and I can't get them out. They had two bathrooms that were plush even back today's by today's standards, and these passengers had met back in Atlanta. The plane had been configured out of Washington as a sleeper, then changing into their pajamas. 
he must have told her that it would be better accommodations in the upper berth. While the altitude and the booze and the Big Bang had got him and he had passed out, Frank and the co-pilot had to go back and help him get to his own berth. We landed the next morning in Brownsville, Texas, around 8 in the morning, and they got off holding hands. So I guess they made out pretty good. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women, keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, enealholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114. And I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you will be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, next week at the same time, 8 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.